Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello, and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so thrilled to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together. And thankfully, we have a lot of wonderful people we can call on to get the help and insight we need along the way. Now, imagine being stuck in a world that doesn't really get who you are. You're different, and in many cases, people see these differences as bad and something that needs to be fixed. My next guest, Deborah Reber, has spoke to us before about neurodiversity and is back to talk more specifically about what she refers to as differently wired kids. We're talking about the one in five children with ADHD, dyslexia, Asperger's, giftedness, anxiety, sensory processing disorder, and other neurodifferences. One in five, 20% of children are neurodiverse and they have many challenges that they must face. And along with these kids come the parents who love them. And they're not always sure how best to help their kids, but will try just about anything. They try to find the right school, the teachers, therapists, medications, as well as the right parenting group and friends who will support them. It's hard to know how to handle it all, but Debbie Reber is here to help. Debbie Reber is a New York Times bestselling author and the founder of Tilt Parenting, a website, top podcast, and social media community for parents who are raising differently wired children. Her newest book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World, came out just recently in early June 2018. She currently lives with her son and husband in the Netherlands. We are so glad to have you here again today, Debbie. Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. It's great to be back. Thanks, Robin. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. And I know we've talked about what kind of brought you into this world and and talking about neurodiversity before. But can you tell us quickly, for those who haven't heard you speak yet or heard the first podcast we did together, uh, just a few sentences about what brought you to your really amazing interest in differently wired children? Yeah, the answer to that is pretty simple in that I am raising a differently wired child myself. I have a 13-year-old son who has a diagnosis of ADHD and Asperger's, and he's also highly gifted. And discovering who he was and trying to figure out how to best support him and going through all the challenges along the way is what inspired me to support other parents who are in the same position as I am. Yeah, very important work, and I know that you're filling a very important hole, and this book really fills a hole, too. There are so many books out there that give parents strategies for addressing and supporting their kids who are lagging in skills or they have specific challenges related to neurodifferences, but I'd love for you to tell us how Differently Wired, your new book, is different from those that are already out there. Well, a lot of the books that exist, most of which I have on my bookshelf, are aimed at, as you said, dealing with very specific challenges related to specific neuro differences. And they're primarily focused on the child's behavior and how we can support them. And so with Differently Wired, first of all, I kind of grouped neuro all the different neuro differences into one bucket because you know, at the end of the day, even if our kids are grappling with different challenges, big picture, we're still facing the same common struggles with education and, and just the personal toll it takes on us as parents to figure out how to navigate this journey. So my book is really aimed at parents and educators and people who want to support neurodiverse kids and helping them learn how to best 
see and understand and accommodate and and just love who these kids are and help them become the best kids they can be. Well, I'm sure it's appreciated. I know that, you know, as a parent who is dealing with some neurodiversity in my household and, uh, you know, many parents that we know that are also dealing with different challenges and gifts that come with neurodiversity, um, I thank you for writing that book. And I've read it myself, and I'm very excited about sharing it today. So the last time we talked about neurodiversity, it, more with broad brushstrokes. And for this podcast episode, I'd love to get more into the nitty gritty and peel apart some of the different types of atypically developing kids, from kids with ADHD to kids who are gifted to kids who have high-functioning autism or what's called Asperger's in some worlds, and how we can support them. But before we do, I'd like to ask you what you see as the biggest challenge for parents who are raising atypical kids. Wow, what a good question. I think I don't know if I can think of the biggest, I think of so many challenges. I think probably the biggest challenge is really us coming to terms and getting out of our own way because we enter into our parenting journey with a set of expectations and an idea of what we think this is going to look like. And in my personal experience and what I've heard from hundreds of parents who I communicate with regularly who are raising atypical kids It is that kind of butting up of reality against expectations that causes us the most anxiety and stress, Mm -hmm. and that filters out into all the different areas of our kids' lives. Mm, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you, you do come into this world thinking that your kids are going to follow a very specific path. And it doesn't only come from what we see other people doing, whether it's, you know, uh, brothers, sisters, friends, you know, the kid next door, but also how we were as young people, right? Like, you know, I I never did that. Or, um, you know, when, when my parents told me to go up and wash my face and brush my teeth, I just got up and did it, you know? So when we see that that's not happening, it can get really frustrating for the parents who are coping with that. Um, I know that you talk in one of the chapters in your book about it's called Stop Fighting Who Your Child Is and Lean In. And in it, you talk about letting yourself mourn, leaning in, actively appreciating who your child is, something you and I spoke about when we um, when we did our podcast on your your world, on your podcast on Tilt Parenting. And, and then this very interesting idea of reframing what is, which is what you're kind of talking about now. And I'd love to sort of dwell there for a minute before we move on. You talk about how you want to take note of what gets under your skin, the dilly-dallying, the fidgeting, the interrupting, the overreacting, and then taking that and reframing it. So these behaviors can drive us bonkers. I mean, I'm literally thinking myself this, you know, that I have to remind my kid, like, just brush your teeth. Just brush. I'm not looking for anything else that you're doing there. Or just eat breakfast. We're not reading right now. We're not bothering this person. We're just... Just attend to these things. Can you talk more about the concept of reframing? Because I'm sure that everyone can benefit from this. This is not just, you know, kids, parents of, of kids who are atypically developing. Like, is anybody. But how we can reframe this instead of reminding your child not to do these behaviors or getting angry when she or he does it. And, and they, in, in the case of differently wired kids, they're not even in control. So can you mm-hmm. talk more about that? Sure. I mean, there's a couple pieces there. One is that I think the first thing is really noticing the things that we are correcting our child about and so many things that we're on our kids about, like, you know, stop rocking in your chair or, Mm -hmm. you know, sit down when you're doing this or, or look at the waitress when you give your order. You know, there's so many things that we just kind of automatically, we're constantly correcting our kids. And I think it's important to just stop right there and say, why? Why am I even calling this out? Like, is this mm. really a big deal in the big picture of things? Like, it's so, is, why is it such a bad thing if he's rocking in his chair? You mm-hmm. know, is, is it dangerous or harmful to other people? And, you know, really getting clear on your motive and 
that alone can start to be really powerful because often our motives aren't very pure. You know, they're based on our own things that we're uncomfortable mm-hmm. with. They're based on our fears about the future. Mm-hmm. They're based on our experiences as a kid, as you were saying, mm-hmm. you know, and things our parents might have said to us. And so it's really important to get clarity around that. And that will just doing that piece goes a long way in terms of helping us kind of break that cycle because those corrections are really they're not pleasant to be on the receiving end mm, of, you know, kidding. and every imagine? day, right? And every, yeah, every day. day, like, think about all the things that 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 you do, you know, yeah. like, if my husband said, stop, you know, <laughs> refolding my towels, why are you doing, you know, like, we just are who we are. And it doesn't feel good to have someone telling you you're doing it wrong all the time. So very good point. And I, I mean, obviously, uh, as a parent, I'm sort of thinking back to all the times that I do this. I know in your book, you talk about, you know, look at me when you're when, when I'm talking to you, it, which is a, a very tough one for for several neurodiverse kids. And, and yet, it's an indicator uh, that the child is listening to us. And it's an indicator of respect. So how do we as parents sort of get over the conventional rules of what is respectful not rocking in your chair because it's bothering other people, not crunching your cereal with a spoon because it's, you know, distracting to somebody else. How do we get over all of the sort of conventional rules and accept our child for who they are, given that they can't help who they are, of course, and we need to embrace that? Right. Again, this is so much of this work is going to happen internally for us. Mm. So at the root of the things that drive us crazy, you know, our concerns maybe about what other people are thinking, Mm -hmm. you know, especially if we're in a public space, and our child is doing something that we know other people are looking at, um, or we're thinking others are going to judge our own parenting. Mm -hmm. It's really about getting to the root of, of that annoyance, that trigger for Mm -hmm. ourselves. Because in order to accept who our child is, we have to be able to to notice, oh, yeah, there's that feeling coming up again for me. You know, like uh, mm. I'm having that kind of trigger. And we need to be able to stop ourselves right then and there. Is this, you know, really a bad thing? Is this my own issue? Is this going to, you know, negatively impact my child in the future if he's crunching, you know, if he's chewing with his mouth open, you know, and I do this too, you know, um, that's a big one for me actually chewing with mouth open. It's like, ah, stop doing that. So, I mean, there's also ways to gently kind of remind and say, oh, some people find that really, um, some people really struggle hearing the sound. It can really gross some people out. It might just be something you, you can become aware of. So Mm. I think there's ways to, to also just let our kids know that, what they're doing might uh, turn some people off, mm-hmm. but we can also do it in a way that is more, isn't that interesting? Like here's mm-hmm. some information you might want to know as opposed to you're doing it wrong, you know, and a, and a correction. Right. So there's more of a, there's the more of a kind way of doing this rather than shaming the child for doing yes. something that you believe in that moment, they must be doing on purpose just to irritate you. Right. I, I mean, so much of the time we get that, right? We feel yes. that way. I think that's such a great point that there is a lot of belief that whether we even verbalize it or not, but we have a sense often that our child is purposefully manipulating us or, you know, this is a choice that they're making. And this is something I've I've said to my husband in the past, you know, when Asher has had really intense, you know, what what I would describe as an overreaction to a situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when that catches you off guard, that's, as a parent, that's really uncomfortable and disconcerting. And, you know, sometimes my husband would get really annoyed mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. And and I would just have to remind him, you know, Asher doesn't want to be feeling this way. This does not feel good for him either. Trust me, this isn't a choice he's making if he could do better. Mm-hmm. If he could experience this differently, he would. 
you know, some good perspective taking there and probably stops people in their tracks and you go, oh, right. Not only is it not in their control, but they really wish it was different too. They don't want to do this. They don't want to feel bad. No child is trying to make the people they love irritated. That doesn't feel good for anybody. No. And, you know, it's that Dr. Ross Green has that lovely quote, which I think about all the time and was a game changer for me that kids do well when they can. And that's just such a great reminder that, you know, our kids are, they are on their own timeline. Sometimes they have lagging skills. Sometimes they're responding in a way that we don't necessarily like, Mm -hmm. but they are doing the best they can with the tools they have at any given time. So let's let's lean into the area of ADHD for a moment here. It's something that you've talked about as a diagnosis your child received fairly early on. Some still seem to contend, though, that ADHD is just kids behaving badly or parents who have no control over their kids. It's entitlement. It's lack of self-control. So can you tell me what's really going on here with ADHD and how... We can go from treating these children specifically as as people who are ill-behaved and instead meeting them where they are. Yeah, ADHD is, I think, among the most maligned, you know, um, neuro differences or diagnoses that people can have, the most stigmatized Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And, you know, you bringing up that idea that, you know, some people believe this isn't a real thing. And, you know, that, that kind of, those articles, when they kind of come on my newsfeed on mm-hmm. Facebook, just infuriate mm-hmm. me when people are saying, you know, that this is, oh, this is an interesting point of view. If we just fed our child this way, or, you know, there was that article I mentioned in the book about, you know, yes. French kids don't yes. have ADHD. I'm like, really? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think for whatever reason, ADHD is treated as something that actually needs to be corrected. Whereas, you know, there are a lot of other neural differences, like a learning difference, such as dyslexia, for example, we accommodate and support a child with dyslexia, right? We help them have tools so that they can, you know, meet their personal goals and, and learn how to kind of work around things that can be challenging for them. And with ADHD, people seem to be looking to fix Mm -hmm. the behavior Mm -hmm. because the behavior can be challenging in a school setting. I mean, for kids, it's really about, you know, the education system and how disruptive it can be. Mm -hmm. And that's really challenging. I mean, that's challenging for kids with ADHD because so many of them do feel um, like screw ups because, because of the way that they are not, thriving in school Mm -hmm. or the school system just is almost designed to highlight (laughs) their challenges, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the expectations. So it is a really tricky, it's a really tricky thing to deal with. And it's something, you know, that, you know, as you mentioned, my son Asher has ADHD and um, it's something even I've had to really work hard at to, to really appreciate the aspects of his ADHD that can be challenging, you know, to, to be around sometimes. I agree with that. I, I've had teachers call, uh, you know, and, and tell me that Noah is tapping his pencil in class, you know, he's, he's talking to his neighbor and knowing my child who is such a learner, like loves learning. I think to myself, well, here's a child who has ADHD and who just needs to get up and walk around. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it just seems very obvious to me that that child needs to move. But in a school setting, we often can't allow a child to move around because it could be distracting to other children. And yet kids who have ADHD are often in a situation where they learn best when they are able to stand, move around, touch things. So you're right. It's very much at odds with the traditional way of teaching children in a school setting. So what are some of your answers to a parent who is hearing feedback like that so that they can advocate for their child 
and still not uh, have a situation where maybe the teacher is resentful that a child may be doing these behaviors seemingly on purpose. Yeah, I think there's a lot of education that has to happen. And, you know, unfortunately, it does come down to parents like us uh, having to step into that role of compassionately educating teachers and, and other people. I mean, I'll just give a super quick example. Asher, when he was in, in a traditional school, I remember him telling me how hard it was for him when a teacher would say, you know, pay attention because he on the outside it looked like he wasn't paying mm -hmm. any attention because he was maybe doodling or playing with something or looking out the window or something. And he was constantly corrected. And he told me, mom, if I, the minute I have to stop doing that other thing and just look at them, I'm so focused mm -hmm. on not doing the other behavior mm -hmm. that I can't hear anything they're saying. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed that part of your book when you said that. And it, it dawned on me that, you know, each time that I've told my son to look at me while I'm talking to him, that he may be experiencing the same thing that Asher brought up. So thank you, Asher, for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, but that's something a lot of teachers don't know. I mean, even some of the school systems Asher was in I w that were designed to support different kinds of learners, there was still a lack of, a, of real understanding. There might be kind of a academic understanding mm -hmm you know, that this is what, you know, but in reality, in our classroom, this is the way we do things. So it, there's got to be some more kind of back and forth. And, um, you know, I really encourage parents to, to be, to make a ruckus, as I have a chapter in my book about making a ruckus, but in a, in a compassionate way to really align with our kids' teachers and help them really understand, you know, convey to them how our child does pay attention what that looks like and work with them to come up with some solutions. You know, I know that the walking around thing is really, really tricky. And I wish I had an answer for, for what that looks like in a classroom. Um, Asher has some ideas about it, which he just shared on a podcast where he thinks that there should the whole middle area of a classroom should be empty spaces and there should be a couple of desks on the outside for people who need to sit. <laughs> I was mm -hmm. like, okay. <laughs> In some schools. Just let yeah. everybody walk around and, and stand up. No, that's, it, I just, I know, I agree. I wish that, I wish that the kids had more of an ability to, to get up when need be so that they can get that pent up energy out and then they can, be more attentive. I mean, it's just interesting that the thing that is argued against, the thing that seems disruptive is the very thing that will make it so the kids are not disruptive. Yeah. 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 I mean, it is, it's going to take time. I think there's a, just a culture shift that is going to have to happen. And, you know, with, you know, 20%, and I think it's much higher than that mm -hmm. 20%. I'd agree students, with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who are differently wired, you know, this change is going to come, you know, but it's, it's, we know that how slow some systems uh, and structures can be to make change. But I think the more that we can continue to advocate for our kids and just educate, compassionately educate people who interact with them about what they need and get creative. You know, I would say, don't take no for an answer. Like, continue to experiment and try things out. You would be surprised at how willing many schools are to try something completely different to meet a child's needs. Mm, mm. That's important to keep in mind. I mean, we have some incredible teachers out there. And uh, I, I'm sure that many teachers want to reach as many children as possible. And and often when I'm talking to teachers, they, they are not so happy with the idea that curriculum is empowering only one type of child either. So mm -hmm. I think you're right there that many parent, many ch uh, teachers would be very willing to try something new, especially if you have some good ideas. Now, another area you cover in the book is giftedness, which is such a funny thing, a word that sounds not only free of challenges, but, but truly like a child has a big leg up in life. But this isn't always the case. So can you speak to us about some of the challenges of giftedness and how we can best help these kids thrive. 
Yeah, giftedness is definitely, as you said, a trigger for so many people for whatever reason. Um, you know, it, it does, there is this assumption that being gifted is like the golden ticket, and that's just so not the case. Um, I think one of the things that is probably most challenging for gifted kids is they often just feel different from their peers. You know, they are operating on a different level in some way, creatively, um, intellectually, whatever that is, but they're experiencing the world in a more intense way. You know, they tend to feel things more deeply. They are more triggered by emotional things. You know, the news, you know, just seeing what's happening in the world can be really anxiety provoking or um, they just feel that stuff so deeply and it's really challenging. So there's that piece. And then there's also the piece of just thinking about things so differently and really not being able to find other kids who, who necessarily get them, you know, who are in, interested in the same things. And so you kind of feel like an alien, you know, walking around. Um, and so I think for, for parents with kids who are gifted, it's really important to for that emotional piece to just recognize that and know that they are going to feel things more deeply and be really careful about what you expose them to. I know that, mm -hmm. you know, there's this idea that, you know, we don't want to shelter our kids. And, you know, when, when tragedies happen or some of the terrible things we see on the news, um, there's always discussions on Facebook groups, mm -hmm. like, at what age do you tell your kids? And I don't want to shelter my kids. We live in the real world. Mm -hmm. And I actually mm -hmm. would say for, especially for gifted and highly sensitive kids that shelter, like go ahead and mm -hmm. shelter. You know, if this is not something your child needs to know, recognize that mm -hmm. telling them about it could actually really take them to a dark place. So I think that's important. Um, and the other piece I would say, you know, just to, for the, the academic or the, the creative, the, the higher level thinking stuff, it's really important to find ways to just support who your kids are and let them go dive deep into things, mm -hmm. even if they seem really obscure and uh, <laughs> strange and, right. you know, um, train schedules or, or whatever it is, you know, um, give them opportunities to really dive deeply into things and find ways to supplement whatever is happening in school so they can feel like they're really being challenged because that's a, really important to them. Do you find that with kids who do need that deep dive, that having a uh, somebody like a tutor at home kind of thing is, is needed, or necessary, or helpful? Or do you feel like they can simply get into things with, with books and kind of on their own and independent study? What do you recommend for those kids outside of school time? I think it depends on the child. And one of the things that you also don't want to do is, you know, oh, my child's interested in this, let me buy them all 50 books and sign them up for 20 online courses. And, you know, um, it's important to follow their lead. Right. Um, you know, if your child is an avid reader, by all means, like take them to the bookstore or the library and let them kind of go wild. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many great programs for, you know, just online learning programs. The Gifted Homeschoolers Forum is one that I love um, that Asher takes classes with. And I know a lot of kids who are in traditional schools supplement by doing those courses and then they can kind of be with a group of their peers virtually. Um, so I think it really, really depends on on their personal style, their learning style. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up, though, if mm -hmm. I may. Yes, with please. Gifted that, that I should have mentioned. Um, that's a real challenge for these kids. And that's the asynchronous development um, that's happening. And that is that disconnect between being at this kind of higher intellectual level mm -hmm. and maybe being actually below their same age peers with their emotional mm -hmm. um, development. And that disconnect, and this is something a lot of even schools with gifted, you know, that support gifted kids don't get, that disconnect can be hugely unsettling and can create a lot of dysregulation. So, you know, you could have a kid who's 10 who can explain quantum physics to you, but, you know, they might cry over something that, you know, would on the surface seem like not a big deal. Um, 
And that's a very real thing for them. And we need to be aware of that and sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. Very important. And, and I, some of these things about giftedness, I, I honestly learned from reading your book because I didn't realize some of the uh, intense challenges that come. I knew some of them, but some of them, you know, from your own experience were illuminating. So while we can go into different areas of neurodiversity, uh, let's look into high-functioning autism um, or what's been referred to as Asperger's in the past, sometimes still is. For those kids, many are in typical environments with typically developing kids, but somehow can have some trouble fitting in. I'd love for you to talk about what's going on here and how we can best support these kids who can be challenged when reading people's emotions, can have trouble with being isolated or passed over or even rejected, and yet maybe doing really well academically or on paper? Yeah, autism is one of those differences that tends to be marked by that social piece. Like Mm -hmm. that's one of the key um, identifying factors or or, um, markers for Mm -hmm. being autistic. And that is really tricky for school age kids because they tend to just stand out because they're just a little different, right? So mm-hmm. there, so much learning happens for kids, and especially in elementary school, by watching what their peers are doing, right? The teachers teaching, and then the teacher says, "Okay, everybody, do this." And most kids do that, and then they'll see the other kids doing it. Oh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Mm -hmm. a kid who isn't reading those social cues, that's not going to make any impression on them. So they tend to be kind of doing their own thing a lot of the time. And that can be hard when you're with other kids because they'll notice that right away. They'll be like, why is so-and-so not doing this? Or they're not following instructions or whatever. Um, And then also just not recognizing sometimes – intent behind things and um, behind and just not understanding the social dynamic can be really challenging for a lot of people with autism not every child with autism and Asher's a pretty social guy he would he would dispute everything I'm saying right now he's like well that's not a problem for me Mm -hmm. but um you know with with autism and with so many of these things I really think it's important to to I just to educate our kids, our neurotypical kids, Mm -hmm. to better understand and just to be aware that people are moving through the world in different ways. And I think this is something that, you know, I would encourage everyone to just kind of have open communications with their young children. Oh, you know, this is something that um, people with autism sometimes do this. Or if you're out in public and you notice something, um, oh, I wonder if this might be going on. And then having a conversation with your child because I think it's really important that these kids who are neurotypical kind of grow up aware and understanding Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. when we know what's going on, it's just a difference, right? It's not a bad thing. It's just what is. And I really believe that neurotypical kids can be the best allies for kids, especially kids on the spectrum. There are more and more of them, as you said, Mm -hmm. in every classroom. Mm -hmm. And we need to kind of make people aware of what it looks like and, and just knowing it's a different way of moving through the world. It's not a bad thing. It just is what it is. So what might you say if you were out at the park or at a restaurant and you saw a child or an adult um, acting a little bit differently than somebody else. And what might you say to start off that type of conversation with your child so that they get this understanding, a sensitivity, and aren't looking at that person as something that is strange or that that person is doing something to draw attention to him or herself or be annoying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I tend to have conversations like this after the fact, Mm -hmm. like rather than in the moment, I I tend to circle back to Asher and and I'll say, did you notice what that um, kid on the slide was doing? Did you, did you, 
you see what was happening there and, you know, wait for his response and then say, yeah, I did too. I, I have a feeling. And then I might say, I have a feeling that he's someone who's really um, working on, like, doesn't have a good sense of people's personal space, because mm-hmm. he really wanted to be kind of right in there with everybody. And I could tell it was making people uncomfortable. What did you notice? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I like to start conversations like that, but not, but letting them kind of lead the way, like, did you think anything was different about that? What did mm-hmm. you think about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, once the conversation's going, it's always about that core message. Yeah, isn't that really interesting? You know, everybody's kind of got their own thing. We're, we all move through the world in a different way. Mm-hmm. And my hunch is this is someone who's um, dealing with this particular thing. And sometimes that looks like this. Um, just in the way that you are working on, you know, and mm-hmm. so it's always kind of bringing it, bringing it back right. to that. Right. I think it's important, though, to talk about this stuff, if a kid's behavior is really off putting, because we don't want our kids to be making a negative judgment about another child when that child is just expressing who they are. Mm-hmm. So it is really important to, to not just let it go, but to use that as an opportunity to expose our child to neuro differences and to help that kind of plant that seed of compassion for other people and the way that they're experiencing life. Yeah, I tell my kids, everybody's working on something, you know, and just like you're working on this, that person may be working on this. And, yeah. you know, helping them to understand that we're all human. When you uh, brought up this, you know, idea that you know, that people are just expressing who they are. It's interesting because it it almost feels like, you know, this sort of neurodiverse continuum, like, oh, all right, everybody's sort of somewhere along the line and they're going to express their own, the way that they are in, in all different types of ways, just like, you know, we've had these conversations about gender or whatever, you know, that there's Mm -hmm. kids are going to be expressing themselves and there's no right or wrong in this situation. It it is what it is. And we want to make sure we can embrace that person for who they are rather than questioning why they're doing that and why they're not more like you or more Mm -hmm. like the typical person or the more, more like the person that people think you're supposed to be. Yeah, there's such a high value on conformity, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. And so for, for kids, uh, especially as they kind of become tweens and and get into the middle school years, and they become more self aware, that that is such a driving force. And so for kids who are able to conform and who are driven by that, then they are really going to look at this other, you know, people who Mm -hmm. aren't conforming, um, as strange or, or really different. But really, as you said, if we're, we're all on this continuum, it's just that those neurotypical kids or those kids who are able to conform are better able mm. to kind of, kind of take all this information and make it um, and have it inform their own behavior because their ego is driving the show, right? They want to fit in, they want to be cool, they want to, um, to not stand out. Mm-hmm. And one of the cool things about many neuro uh, diverse kids is they don't have that same drive to fit in, which is something I love (laughs) about them. Um, And uh, that can be really freeing, but it is going to stand out to other people. Mm -hmm. Yes, it absolutely is. And it certainly serves them well later on in life when they can go after their gift, their dream, their thing, their passion. And all of a sudden people are like, wow, that yep. that person is changing the world. Well, yes, yep. it's the very thing that you were trying to stamp out of that child. So <laughs> it's just interesting that that winds up happening. So I, I'd love to get into how we as parents and educators can change our thinking and our behavior when it comes to the way we view and interact with differently wired kids. So you speak in your book about questioning connecting with your community, self-care, and proactively planning for challenges. So I was wondering if you could expand on maybe, you know, one or two of these suggestions for how we can kind of get out of our own way, as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, and how we can better think and act 
when it comes to our neurodiverse kids? Yeah, I'll just touch on that last one first. And that is that proactively planning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's so important because, (laughs) because especially again, in public situations, this is when the stakes are high, Mm -hmm. right? We're on an airplane, we're in a long queue for something, you know, we're on public transport, we're in the mall, like whatever it is. But um, all of a sudden, something that our child does that might just be an everyday thing in our home becomes an emergency, because suddenly everyone's looking right. and we get caught up in our own stuff. And so it's really important to, and this is also kind of borrowing from the work of Dr. Ross Green, but to proactively plan for those events. So I advocate making a list of situations that kind of reliably cause havoc or bring up challenges for your child and work with them, doesn't matter how young they are, work with them to talk that through. You know, I notice this tends to happen when we're in this situation. I notice that every time we go to the mall, um, we really have a hard time getting back in the car if we have to walk by the Cinnabon or whatever it is, you know. How can we, like, that's been really hard. What do you notice about that? What do you think's going on? And so having that conversation, but then coming up with the plan, then not just having the plan, but before you go into that situation, prep for it again. Hey, we're about to go to the mall. Do you remember what our plan is? Mm-hmm. How should we handle it today? You know, so there's a lot, of, it's almost role playing and rehearsing. Mm-hmm. But when we can proactively plan for those situations and have a strategy, and it might not work the first time or the second time, but we keep tweaking it until we have something that works. But doing that, will help us feel so much more relieved. And it also helps us not look at the behavior as like, what is this? But instead, oh, yeah, I knew this was going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're not caught off guard. We're accepting the reality of the situation and who our child is. And even that piece alone feels freeing. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels so much better than, than trying to control the situation and losing every time. Right. And it's different than accommodating like, oh, well, you know, the the dog upsets you. Therefore, we won't go to that house with the dog or the mall is a problem. So we will not go to the mall. It's mm-hmm. actually planning in advance so that you can engage in the social behavior and still deal with the the behavior that comes in a proactive way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, we're I mean, it's actually teaching great skills for our kids, right. you know, on top of everything else. We're, we're helping them learn how to self-reflect and teaching them self-awareness and problem solving and perseverance. Mm-hmm. Because, again, we may have to keep tweaking that plan until we get something that works. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Right. And it can be even helpful as an adult. You know, you want to give skills to a child that they can use now and that they can continue to use as an adult. And it may be that that child cannot walk past that Cinnabon yeah. for the rest of his life. You know? it's not I don't a know good why plan. that popped into my head. That is not an issue for us, but I'm sure it has been for someone. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it is, it is interesting and it does allow your child to do the behavior, uh, to be engaged, to do the social behaviors without causing uh, such a problem or strife or, uh, you know, a situation for the entire family family and uh it'll it, that plan in advance is something that they can use for their whole life whether it's in that particular situation or looking back at that and saying oh remember when that was a problem when I was a child here were some of the things that I did to accommodate or deal with that that problem and now I'm going to use that in this situation in a different way so it, it's a great skill to have yeah, exactly. So we've been focusing so much on differently wired kids, but many of your concepts in your book have far-reaching effects on any type of child, atypical, typically developing. So could you tell us how you see this book having applications outside of the core audience of parents who are raising differently wired kids? Yes. 
And I would just say that I get comments, you know, emails from parents all the time saying, you know, my kid's not differently wired, but, you know, this is all applicable mm-hmm. to my own life. Because really, this book is about getting, you know, clear on who you want to be as a parent, being intentional about that, and understanding the ways that you're kind of butting up against, as I said in the beginning, that expectations versus reality, which we all experience, you know, even if, even if you have the, you know, a completely neurotypical child, and, and you're just kind of marching through, they're on their own journey. Mm. They are, they're not fused with you. They are going to make their own decisions that, you know, you may not agree with or that are going to kind of still trigger your own baggage, you know. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this is a book that is going to help people just reflect and kind of do that work on themselves. It's it's not a typical parenting book, again, in that it's going to tell you how to get your child to practice the clarinet every day or, (laughs) you know, to care more about school or whatever that is. It's about being able to show up to the parent-child relationship with confidence and actually tapping into honest to God joy, mm, you know, mm. in, in what we're doing. This is a wonderful time of life. And even if we're having really challenging situations, it's still precious, amazing time. And I think there are ways to be present and joyful, even in the midst of the hard stuff. And that's something I think every parent wants to experience. Mm, so well said and, and very important. We talk about, you know, just being grateful and, and taking that moment and appreciating who your child is for what they bring to the, the world, the table, the everyday, um, even as you are experiencing challenges um, and understanding that that's something that they can lead with. They can lead with those strengths instead of being so focused on what makes them uh, problematic in particular situations and what makes them really uh, something special, what makes them, you know, an, an asset to a situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So out of everything that you've spoken about today or what's in your book, what would you say is your top tip for those parents who are uh, parenting neurodiverse children or for people who are listening to the podcast who are working with neurodiverse children or have them somewhere in their families or in their lives? I would say that, you know, if there's one kind of big takeaway that I want people to have, it's to really recognize and and know that differently wired kids are not broken, mm-hmm. you know, as you said in the beginning, that they don't need fixing. And that, you know, our job isn't to try to get them to conform to our standards or to what society has deemed is normal or right, the right way to do things. But really, our job is to help them nurture their gifts and gain you know, that self-knowledge for who they are so that they can just be exactly who they're meant to be in all their glory, you know, Mm -hmm. bring all their gifts into the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. And if we can look at children, each child in that way, we would certainly be grateful for all the gifts that every child is bringing to the world. And instead of waiting for them to become adults and change the world, you could see how they are impacting their world in a positive way right now. Absolutely. So I really do appreciate what you're saying here. Give us the resource of the week. Where would you like people to go to get more information about you, your book, your podcast, and all the other wonderful things you're doing? The best place to check out um, this work in the book is to go to tiltparenting.com. And that's where my podcast is I do a weekly podcast and just released, I think, episode 112 last week. And, um, and those are with thought leaders and experts and parenting coaches and people like you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then also I have a blog there and you can find out a lot of information about the book as well. And uh, yeah, so tiltparenting.com. 
Excellent. I'm sure a lot of people will be going to it. And the book is Differently Wired. It is such a good book, really helpful to understanding how we can raise an exceptional child in a conventional world, but also how we can support those who are raising atypically developing children and children who are neurodiverse. So I urge you to get that book. Debbie Reber, thank you so much for joining us today. I really just appreciate your outlook, the way that you explain things, and what you're adding to this dialogue about uh, raising kids who are atypically developing, but still have so much to offer this world and really uh, can make a huge difference if we can just stop for a moment and see them for who they are. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for the conversation. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash Dr. Robin Silverman. And let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram. I just got there a little bit ago, a little late to the party, but I am there and I'm so thrilled for you to follow me. Get on there because I'm going to be putting memes up from this podcast because Debbie Reber said some really great things and I want to just commemorate those in a meme that you can share all over the place. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so others are going, can learn about the outstanding solutions that Debbie Reber provided today and use them in their own homes and schools. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit Dr. Robin Silver I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even when it seems like nothing is going right and we all have those days, you've got this. You're here, you're getting the information you need. And on the days when we fall short, never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I get it. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet, sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.